Thank you, Brother Ken. And good morning. Grace and peace to you, uh, brothers and sisters. And I bring greetings uh, from your fellow believers and friends uh, down the street at Emmanuel Church. Um, I'm one of the pastors there, as he said, and it truly is my honor uh, to be here gathered with you this morning. I honestly cannot tell you uh, how good it is to my soul um, to be able to gather with another like-minded church and worship the living God together. Uh, we praise the Lord, honestly, for the gospel witness of Christ's prayers uh, in this area. Um, and we're looking forward to the future as we all seek to propagate gospel renewal in our city and hopefully throughout eastern North Carolina and uh, maybe even the areas beyond. Uh, I would be remiss this morning uh, without thanking your elders um, and Pastor Dave, my dear friend, for the honor of being with you all. Uh, Dave has become a dear, dear friend in ministry uh, that me and uh, our team have long stood in need of. Apparently, he thinks uh, Blake and I, Blake is the other pastor at Emmanuel, apparently thinks we're pretty good friends too because we can't seem to get rid of him. Uh, he keeps hanging out with us and coming around, so we haven't ran him off yet, so I'm assuming that that's a good sign. Uh, and he's now letting a, a Baptist preach in his church pulpit. So I don't know what to make of that, but... I'm joking, but I'll take that as a sign of, uh, of trust. Uh, but in all seriousness, I want to encourage you to take some hope and joy in what your pastors and elders are doing here at Christ Press. Um, the gospel is surprisingly unclear in this area in spite of the absolute overwhelming number of churches that we have. And I can confidently say that your pastors and elders are preaching the gospel clearly. And praise God for that. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and be turning uh, to Psalm 13. Psalm 13, I've been uh, uh, watching your series so far of going through the Psalms this summer. And I've benefited personally of that study. And, and I'm excited about Psalms. If you think about it, it's really almost in a way... Uh, impossible to overstate the, the, the beauty, the impact, the relevance, and the power of the Psalms. Now, the more you take time to dwell on it and think about it, the more you'll see this as true. Just a few things about the Psalms that stand out to me. One of the most interesting things is that you probably know this, uh, but we don't think about it often. The, the Psalms are ancient. Do you, do you get that? The Psalms are, are ancient. They're these ancient expressions of, of piety, the love for God, or really sometimes the lack of piety. Um, and it, if, you, if you think about this, what we're about to read is older than anything you see, uh, anything really on this continent, older than Winterville, Greenville, older than America, uh, older than Western civilization itself. It's a truly ancient thing. And yet the Psalms, in spite of their age and their distance from us, the Psalms are surprisingly relevant. Which in and of itself, if you think about that, as we're going to see today, that alone for me is a, is a huge accomplishment. Something written so long ago to the people of God, by the people of God, by the Holy Spirit, preserved for us, is still to this day relevant to us 
as the people of God. It's really rare. It's the songbook of the people of God. And in that way, the Psalms have found their way into cultures across the earth in, in the form of everything from modern pop song lyrics to, to rock ballads to the silver screen and really everything in between. They've been in the mouths of, of presidents even recently. Queens, kings, emperors, popes, actors, judges, and the like, activists, and even poets the world over. Not only that, but Jesus, as we know, loved the Psalms. If the Psalms were water, Jesus would, would be the fish. And as you know, fish don't just like water. They're not just fond of water. They live in it. They eat in it. They rest in it. They breathe it in and, it's, and sustain themselves with it. And Jesus did that. Jesus quoted the Psalms and the words of the psalmists more than any other book of the Bible. They're actually probably the most quoted single collection of Scripture or maybe even human writing in the world. They truly are remarkable in so many ways, but I think one of the most striking features of the Psalter is what I, I guess I would call the situational nature of the Psalms. I'll try and explain what that means, but there, there's a sort of creative genius about the Psalms. You know, a large majority of the Psalms are, are so personal, so intimate, right? So, so personal and so directly related to the author's situation that if you knew the exact situation, it would lose probably some of its potency and applicability to your own life. Because you could just look at that situation and say, well, I don't really resonate with that particular situation. You know, I've never been chased by an opposing king or whatever situation he might be in. You might struggle to resonate with that. But in their usual genius way, the authors of a large majority of the Psalms keep the exact situation vague or unspecific. This is amazing to me because in doing so, we, the people of God thousands of years later, we are invited into the emotions and the experiences of the psalmist because we're free to interject our own realities, our own situation into the psalm. And miraculously, yet again, as it's done thousands of times down through the centuries, a particular psalm can almost always resonate with our soul in some unique way. It just makes sense. If you've ever come across a psalm in your life where you've read it 14 times and it had no effect on you really, and then you enter into a situation as a believer, you wrestle with questions, pain, suffering, ideas, something in your life as a believer, and then you read the psalm that you've read 14 times, and it clicks. And it moves you and it seems to instantly resonate with you. And it's like, th this guy, he understood what I feel. He, he gets my situation. He knows what this is like. This is how I feel. It's really almost eerie that they express what we feel or think, or in some cases, as maybe today, what we dare to feel or think. And I must warn you that today's psalm is a situational psalm. David is writing out of deep pain 
and suffering. We have a specific term for this type of psalm that you're probably very familiar with. It's called a lament. A psalm that expresses some of the deepest and occasionally the darkest emotions or thoughts that the people of God can feel or think. We don't know the specific situation that prompted the psalm that we're about to read. But David's life, if you know it well, there's no doubt countless situations within which he could have felt this way. And as we read, I I want you to examine your own life. And I'll I'll admit up front that some of you who've hardly been through anything difficult or trying, you, you might not feel the weight of these words. This psalm is for the broken. It's for those who wrestle with God and sometimes go away with a limp. And we will see the emotion in this dramatic psalm. So let's read this together. Psalm 13. I'll read it aloud. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, our Father, We ask you to keep your promises to us now and give us your spirit to see and hear your word, that it would change us. And we pray that you show us Christ. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to go ahead and show you where I'm going. I'm not going to hide my hand per se. I want to walk you through this passage, through this psalm, and lead us to Christ as swiftly as I can. So... I want to I'll point out a three-part structure to the psalm. It's pretty simple. First of all, I want to talk about David's circumstances in the first two verses. Then I want to take it, talk about what David does with the circumstances. And then I want to end with what the circumstances do to David. So first, in verses 1 through 2, I want to talk about David's circumstances and how he starts this psalm. What's that opening question? It's, how long, O Lord... How long? The psalm begins with an anxiety-ridden question, if you can put yourself in that situation. And as if that question wasn't dramatic enough, his, his companion phrases that he adds on after that, it put even more flesh on the emotions he fi- he's feeling. He says, will you, talking to God, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? David is overcome with this feeling, this feeling of dejection and willful neglect. 
This, this seems here to, to, to be a safe place for David. Although he's feeling this disconnection from God, he brings it to God. He writes it in a psalm. Does this not also invite us in uh, as a safe place for our feelings that seem to run wild towards God so often, just like David? Questions, inquiries into what God's doing. You see, we are a people, I would assume, that, that believe in the wisdom of God, the sovereignty of God, and the freedom of God to do as he sees fit. We confessed that earlier. We believe these things and we hold them dear. We, we confess that God is king. God is wise. God is sovereign. And, and David understands that too. He hints towards this reality by saying, how long will you hide your face from me? And we'll find out later he's dealing with an enemy, but what he sees here is God's making the decision to remove himself, to, to feel like his face is veiled between him and David. David knows that God is in control and this leads him to realize that it seems like God's the one that's veiling his face. God seems to be temporarily forgetting David. You see, I'm sure you've wrestled with this if you've been a believer long, but it's one thing to believe in God's freedom to do as he wills and another to be confronted with that will when it does not line up with yours. Those are two different things. God is sovereign, yes, but can I trust him? God is sovereign, but he doesn't seem to be answering me. God is sovereign, but, but where's, his, where's his blessing? Where's his protection, his favor? Church, is, is this not the human experience? David then writes, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? David is in turmoil. I guess you could call it turmoil of, of thought. He's stuck inside his own head, experiencing the, the psychological effects of God's absence. Where, where is God? Why isn't he answering? Will the enemy win? Has, has God left me? He, he won't answer me. He then doesn't just leave it there. So he starts out with his experience, but he expands his, his feelings from specifically towards God and then how he's feeling inside himself. And now he moves to the external, to his enemy. And he says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now, I'll admit the idea of enemy is, is if you read the Psalms at all, it's prevalent in the Psalms. Its meaning can sometimes be easily lost on us. After all, we live post-Christ, post, -Christ, post the, the cross. So didn't Jesus teach us to love our enemies, to, to pray for our enemies? If you read the Psalms a lot, there's not a lot of, not a lot of talk about love for enemy in the Psalms. <laughs> not, not a lot of talk about that. But without, you know, without getting too in-depth here, it's simplest to remind ourselves where this is in redemptive history. 
where this psalm is at. The, the king is, is, is an office. It's an important office in Israel. And it, he's to be the Messiah figure of Israel who is preaching and establishing the reign of the Lord in the land. And in this struggle, you're going to see nations rage against the kingdom of God. The, even the people with inside the kingdom, the, the people ignore it. Enemies come in and subvert it. And, and the story even of David, the story of the king himself, starts out with such hope, but is eventually riddled with failings of his own and the rise of constant adversaries. It would almost seem that the earlier prophecies about David's never-ending reign that you remember, you might recall, and his established seed would be broken. All would seem lost at times. You see, David was completely aware of God's promises to him. Do you get that? He, he knew what God had told him. He was aware of God's promises to him. He was aware of the things that God had promised his lineage. But this situation, all of that was threatened here. Do you get that? This, this enemy, whoever it was, we don't know who it was, was, was on the rise and was being exalted over David. And, and if you think about it, that doesn't line up with the promises that David would reign and that his line would reign. This enemy seems to be threatening the promises of God. This seemed to threaten the very plans of God. And perhaps, perhaps, church, even call into question the justice of God. Had God lied? Did God mispromise or misspeak? Had God misled David with these promises? How could God be letting this happen, this enemy rise? You see, here's a, probably a powerful spot for us to kind of pause and remind ourselves, church, of the advantage that we have over David, the grace that has been shown to us to live today in this point in history. You see, we can see, if we just look back, we can see clearly the mighty plans of God, right? God was going to establish David's seed in his line. But, but it wouldn't be, we know the story, it wouldn't be through Absalom or even Solomon. It, it wouldn't be a kingdom of swords and spears. It wouldn't be a kingdom of a physical temple made with actual stones and gold and a physical Jerusalem. No, we know the story. The divine king the divine king would come years later and would establish the kingdom of God, a kingdom of, of righteousness and justice and mercy, a kingdom of the poor in spirit and the meek, a kingdom where a temple in the heavenly places, as we learn in Hebrews, where the king himself would give himself as a sacrifice for the people and he would establish the heavenly Jerusalem. Jesus, church, Jesus is the king. Jesus is the greater son of David. You see, we, we know this. We're on this side of that. We can see this, but David couldn't. 
David didn't know the whole story. David prophesied in places, but he didn't have the whole picture. He didn't have the details of God's plan. He had God's promises, but he didn't have the whole picture of how it was going to come to pass. Can you understand now, church, more clearly how the, the plight of David here, the anxiety of David here? Sometimes, I would say probably most of the time, we don't see or understand the whole story, just like David. We can't seem to make sense of God's promises. We have his promises in his word preserved for us. We can't seem to make sense of God's promises and our circumstances. We struggle to harmonize the two. We do this all the time. You may say, you know, the church of Jesus wins in the end, right? Y'all just went through a study on Revelation, and I've been following that, and what a beautiful study it was. In the end, the church wins, right? But why is my church fracturing? You might be saying that to yourself. You might have known somebody that has said that. You know, I, I want to support my family like God teaches I should, but, but my business is failing. I, I know God wants me to have a good marriage, but the more, the more I work on it, the more time I put into it, it, it just seems to be falling apart. God wants me to, to serve him faithfully, but, but my health keeps deteriorating. Why? God teaches that I should serve others and grow in sanctification, but my chronic pain is so bad I can barely take care of myself. Where is God in that? Where is God in an unexpected cancer diagnosis? Where is God when the wicked never stumble and abound in every place? You see, we can't seem, church, to make sense of God's apparent absence in our hopeless situations when his promises don't line up with our circumstances. All of this is deeply and intimately human. This is our experience, and David understood it well. But now we see that David didn't just lodge a complaint with God. He didn't just write this psalm to complain about his circumstances. But after he expressed them, how he felt, where he was at, we see in number two, what David does with his circumstances. Verses three and four, he says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes Rejoice because I'm shaken. David prays. David offers up supplication to the living God. He asks God to, to consider himself, to answer him. For without God, just to put it bluntly as we see, he will die. Without God, David's situation is, is hopeless. The enemy will win. He tells God this. He turns here, as if you read Psalms a lot, you'll, you'll be familiar with this turn. He, he turns here and the mood shifts, right? And the ascension of the psalm back towards hope begins in what seemed to be a really hopeless situation. The mood shifts with this earnest, 
supplicatory prayer. He calls out to God and states a fact. I need you. David needs God. I can't help but notice here that David still, in spite of the chaos and the distance that he feels with God, you know what David seemed to understand? He seemed to get the idea that the safest place and the best place for his doubts and his fears were in the arms of God. He understood that. Is that not the case for us today, church? Think about who you are in Christ, the the covenant people of God, bought by his blood, purchased by the king, adopted, justified, sanctified, and glorified already in the mind of God. His children, heirs of his house, his table has been prepared before us at no cost to us and infinite cost to him. And you know what he says to us? Come and dine with me. Believer here today, may I remind you what David understood all those years ago? You can tell him. You can tell him. He can handle even your doubts. He can handle your fear. He can handle your anxiety. He can even handle, handle your questioning of him. Can he not? Is he not big enough to handle that? If our souls and our eternities rest easy in his hands, can we not trust him with our fears or even our dark questions? Do, do children need shy away from their own mothers or sons pull back from their fathers? No. David prayed. But we now see not only the circumstances that he was describing and what David does with those, but we see, number three, what the circumstances seem to bring about in David. Here, David realizes that however great the pressure may be to feel abandoned and alone, that's not true. Look in verse 5 and 6, how this changes. What a beautiful text. But... That conjunction in the Psalms is always so important. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You see, David realizes that however great that pressure may be to feel abandoned and alone, David can trust that God is in charge, not the enemy. And in spite of the world, in spite of the enemy, in spite of the fear or the anxiety or or the burden of existence itself, God's covenant still remains. It is still in effect. David has trusted in the pledged love of God Almighty for his people. This is, is remarkable, church, this shift. If you, if you don't get anything else, don't miss this. What David does here is David is shifting 
his attention away from the situation and its effects on the quality of his faith. And he is reorienting towards the quality of the object of his faith. That is all the difference. David has trusted in that God. Did you get that, church? Looking to the strength of the object of our faith. Look, your marriage may be failing, but can Jesus heal broken things? Your child may be wayward, but can Jesus save a thief on a cross in his last moments? Your pain may be unbearable at times, but it won't have the last word. You may lose, you may fail, you may even die. But Jesus, Jesus won, Jesus conquered, and Jesus opens tombs. It's not about how strong or weak you are, believer. It's about how strong he is. It's not about how mighty the enemy seems to us. It's about how mighty the Savior is. It's not about how great your sins seem to hold sway over you. It's about the blood of the Lamb and its power over your sin. It's not about how tightly you are squeezing on to Christ. It's about how tightly He is squeezing on to you. That is the difference, the turn here. In Hebrews the author puts it this way. He tells us to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus doesn't just start it, church. Jesus finishes it. He's the finisher. And in this covenant that I just described, this covenant, of of boundless love through faith alone and Christ alone, inside of this covenant, we can sing the way David sings and say, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Bountifully. In closing, I want you to think about something. I, I, I think I can imagine pretty easily David writing this psalm. I think I can imagine him reading it later in life. Maybe even singing it, perhaps singing it in in worship or to Solomon. And him returning over and over again to the situation that God brought him through. I can imagine beyond the writing of this psalm, people like Solomon or, or Esther or Nehemiah or Isaiah reading this psalm and being moved. I can imagine the hope that it's brought Israel down through the ages. But can you imagine how Jesus read this psalm? It's almost 100% certain he, is, he read it. Can you imagine how he read it? I wonder if his eyes clouded with tears the first time that he read the words, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Knowing that one day he would feel the sting of that emotion far deeper than even David did. 
You see, Jesus didn't just feel like he was separated from God. He, it wasn't just an emotion like David. He actually was estranged from the Father on the cross for you. Believer, for you, for your sin. Jesus understood this psalm better than even the man who penned it. You see, Jesus was the king who died to save his people. He was the groom who laid down his life for his bride. He was the older brother that sacrificed himself for his siblings. Jesus is the true son of David. We sang about it earlier. David's root. And when you realize that God didn't stop at any cost, believer, that he went to impossible lengths to save us in Christ, only then can you begin to understand the power of those last two verses. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. You see, as I said earlier, Jesus loved the Psalms. They filled his imagination. They filled his ministry. And many of you may be aware of the fact that the last words that Jesus spoke on the cross before he died were the Psalms. It's from a similar psalm, same structure of the psalm that we study today. Psalm 22. He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, church, we know a God who has entered into our suffering, who, who knows what it is actually like to feel completely disconnected from the Father, but not because of his own willful sin, no, no, but because he chose the option willingly to save us, a sinful people, from the justice that demanded our own destruction. This is the greater David that we know as Christ the Lord. So I encourage you, church, look up, O Israel. Look up and rejoice, for he has dealt bountifully with us. You see, the Psalms, in, in many ways, they anticipate Christ. They, they kind of point us towards him. And in Christ, their fulfillment is ultimately found. And in several cases, the answer to the questions asked in the actual Psalms themselves are only fully answered in Jesus. And it's the same with this Psalm today. So in a way, God has answered David's question. How long, O Lord? How long? And in Christ, he says to David and to us today, not long. Not long. Let's pray. God in heaven, our Father.